Hello, everybody. This is Ash Kumra. I'm co-founder of DreamItAlive.com. Today's interview is with a very extraordinary gentleman, healer, teacher, and someone who has transformed many people across the world. His name is Greg Braden. He is a New York Times bestselling author whose work has led to cutting-edge books such as The God Code, The Divine Matrix, The Spontaneous Healing of Belief, and Fractal Time. His work has actually been published in over 17 languages in 33 countries, and really it shows beyond any reasonable doubt that the key to our future lies within the wisdom of our past. And that's something that we are going to talk to Greg about further along the lines of the many leaps that he's made integrating science to technology and other aspects of himself. Because um, with DreamingAlive.com, as many of you know, our whole mission is to help you become the best version of yourselves. We provide visualization tools, online dream boards to properly map out your dream life and life goals, and helpful personal development content so that you are inspired, you are constantly learning, and you are infused with your own purpose so that the world can be better. And naturally, this interview will hopefully help you get to that potential. So, Greg, how are you today? Ash, I am doing well. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the program. I'm absolutely thrilled to be on this program. And, uh, you know, there's so many things that we could talk about. And uh, as I said, I I trust you. I'm going to follow your lead. My sense is our time together is going to go by very, very quickly today. (laughs) I just had that feeling. (laughs) No, no problem. It's truly truly going to be a great conversation. Um, I'm curious, Greg, uh, before we dive into some of the more spiritual and metaphysical questions, tell us a little more about your, your background, specifically how you got to where you are right now with your life. You know, I think it's a wonderful place to begin. And, um, you know, I, I guess the first time I was asked a question, uh, they, it came across, people said, Greg, how did you make what they perceived to be this quantum leap from the world of, of science and spirituality into uh, the, the kinds of things that, that I'm experiencing right now, that I'm exploring right now? And when I heard the question, uh, I was a little surprised because for me it was always less of a, of a leap and more of a of a logical progression. It, it simply made sense. Uh, and I think a lot of that is because of the way that, uh, that I have thought from the time I was very young. I was born and raised uh, in a very conservative uh, part of this country in northern Missouri. And the topics that we're talking about now, science, spirituality, those kinds of things, uh, they were something that people simply didn't talk about at the breakfast table in the morning or you know, when we go to school, but just because they didn't talk about them, I made an assumption when I was young that people all believed, essentially, as I believed, that we all believed the same thing. And my belief was I, I never made a distinction between science and spirituality. I never separated the two. I always believed that when I was studying what we call science, so when I was studying geology and biology and chemistry and physics, that what I was actually doing was studying the little compartmentalized facets of, uh, of a greater knowing, and that greater knowing ultimately gives us insight into the deepest truths of, of nature uh, and uh, our spiritual relationship to nature. So I kind of went on that assumption. <clears throat> Excuse me. It wasn't until uh, I was in the corporations that I found that, that nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, and I was actually told that I had to make a, a choice, Ash. I was told 
when I was in the corporations, I had to choose between science and spirituality, but the two are mutually incompatible. And it was actually kind of biblical terminology <laughs> that they used. They said, Greg, you cannot follow two masters. You have to make a choice. And it was the context of that ultimatum, I think, that has shaped much of my life uh, and, and the work that I'm doing today. Uh, it was during the Cold War years, a very frightening time in the history of, uh, of our nation, of uh, the time of the superpowers, the former Soviet Union and, and the United States, and in the history of the world, when we had nuclear arsenals uh, that were designed to do the unthinkable and, and you know, the, the power to eliminate entire civilian populations. And my thinking has always been that if we know where and how to look into the past, that we would find the answers to help us become more than the differences that have divided us and ultimately end the kind of wars that we found ourselves in the 20th century and that I found myself working in in the industry during the Cold War. So it was with that context that my ultimatum, when I was told I had to choose between two great ways of knowing, between science, which is about 300 years old, uh, and spirituality, well, the spiritual traditions go back about 5,000 years, about 5,500 years. I asked a question in return. I said, what if we don't make the distinction between science and spirituality? What if we don't choose one or the other? Rather, what would happen if we were to marry these two great ways of knowing into a wisdom that is more in their union than either could be individually? More than science can be all by itself. More than spirituality can be all by itself. Would that give us the evolutionary edge to transcend, not just to survive, but to transcend the challenges that we found ourselves in in that time in our lives to become better people and create a better world? So everything that I've done from that time, each of my books and the, the, the work that I pursue, uh, has been my effort to answer that question for myself. Uh, what happens when we marry these two great ways of knowing how does that serve us in our lives uh, today and, and how does it help to create a better world? So, so it's a long answer to a short question, but I wanted to lay that out so we can tie into it as we go through our program here. No, I, I, I really appreciate that. And um, that was a very extensive overview and I'm thrilled to have learned kind of your thought process. I'm personally just fascinated with how do people reach that uh, pinnacle or reach that purpose in life to, you know, elevate others. And um, it sounds like you're very passionate about science, technology, and uh, spirituality. I'm kind of curious, just along those lines, um, what are your thoughts about, you know, the world now where there are people and companies and innovations and guides that are trying to make this leap of integrating science, technology, and spirituality. Um, what are your thoughts on that whole subject? Well, that's, you know, we could do a whole program on <laughs> that whole subject. The, first of all, I'm going to preface everything I'm saying. Uh, I'm an optimist, and, and I am an optimist as well as a realist. And realistically, I've never been more optimistic about our world, about our nation here in the United States of America, about all nations, because I know we have listeners in, in many parts of the world. Uh, I've never been more optimistic for this reason. We are at this precious crossroads in personal and collective experience 
where we now know what doesn't work and we know what does work. And many of, of the systems and the ways of living and thinking that we have all grown accustomed to, we've felt that we've mastered in the past uh, the past 100, 150 years, certainly in our lifetimes, those systems, they worked well enough to get us to where we are today, to where you and I can have this, this conversation and, and we're living our lives that they served us to this point. Uh, so we have to say they work, but the world has changed. And as the world has changed, many of the ways of approaching problems and living life are simply no longer sustainable. And I think that's what we're finding. The things that are no longer sustainable are the things that are, are buckling and collapsing. They're breaking down all around us. So when people say to me, you know, the world looks like it's going crazy and, and what, in the, what in the world is going on, I invite them to step back and take a, a, a look at the big picture. There are a lot of really good things happening in the world today. They're often over, overshadowed by a very biased, very skewed corporate media. Uh, you have to look way beyond mainstream media to, to truly find out what's happening in our lives, what's happening in the world and the good things. But I, I love to stand in front of a live audience. I was just in Houston, Texas this last weekend, and I had the opportunity to do this. I look into people's eyes and I say, we already have the solutions for all the big problems in, in the world. That technologically, they already exist. What's lacking right now, that it's a crisis in thinking, the thinking that makes those things a priority uh, in, in the lives of, of ourselves and of our, our global family. We have all the food. We already have all the food we need to feed every mouth of every human on the face of the earth. There is no shortage of food right now. That's not why our brothers and sisters are going to bed hungry tonight. We have the technology, and we have for over 60 years, to create electricity and bring it into the home of every, every family that chooses it. Not all families want electricity, believe it or not. But those that do, we can do this inexpensively. We can do it sustainably. We can do it with zero greenhouse gases using technologies that cannot be weaponized. We've, it sounds like a perfect solution, but we not perfect, it's a step in the right direction. We have that. We know how to create the economies so we don't have this polarity between the haves and the have-nots and the wealth and the poverty. We have these things. There's, there's a community right now in northern Arizona that has implemented, uh, implemented some of the technologies that, that I'm talking about. 5,000 people, so it's no small community, living together, producing 100% of their own power, 100% of their own food, and they have 100% employment rate for everyone that chooses to work supporting the systems of growing the food and creating the energy that sustains the community. And it's not the only one. I've seen these in Europe, and I've seen them in Australia as well. So we have the answers uh, already, and, and for me, that's the really good news. And if we look closely, the only things that are broken are the things that are unsustainable in our lives. So as we open our hearts and minds to the possibilities to, and, and the, how to become resilient to this time of extremes that we're living, those solutions are already there. And that's a relief for a lot of people. They, they think we've got to go back to the drawing board and we've got so much work to do to create you know, the energy or the economy or the way to grow the food or the way to bring the families and society together. It's all, all there. It simply is a matter of us letting go, our willingness to let go of the things that have become familiar and worked in the past so that we can make room in our psyche and our emotions, our hearts and minds to embrace 
what is here now so that we can thrive in this new world that is very, very different than the world that we've known in the past. And this, is, this I think, is where the great challenge is, Ash. We're, we've never been conditioned to think of anything other than the world that we were raised in and the way things worked during that time. And the fact that many of those things are no longer working leads people to believe the world is broken, when in fact we are a, a rare generation where the changes are unfolding so quickly, it's not that the world is broken so much as the world that we've known no longer exists. It disappeared. So we're trying to use and implement solutions and ideas and ways of thinking that worked in the past in a, a world that no longer exists, and the new world is not supporting those ways of thinking. So when we can find a way, and we do this in the books and the programs and the workshops, we can talk about it here in this program, we can find a way to release the expectations, to stop clinging to an idea of what the world used to be and what normal is and embrace the new normal that's emerging, then it eliminates a lot of the struggle, a lot of the suffering, and allows us to thrive, literally thrive, not just survive again, but thrive in this new normal that's emerging. And the way to, to go about doing that, this is so interesting to me, it's bringing us full circle. Our most ancient and cherished spiritual traditions have always given us the instructions with regard to, to how we deal with change, become resilient to change. Science is only about 300 years old, as, as we said, and, and science has discounted those ancient and indigenous traditions for a very long time until recently. Now science is revealing the connection within our own bodies, a connection between the heart and the brain, for example, the neural network in the heart that connects to the neural network in the brain. When we learn to marry those two neural networks together, that gives us the strength and empowers us to, uh, to find resilience in times of change. Our ancestors were good at that. Science now is coming full circle and is now supporting many of those ancient traditions. So I'm an optimist. I, I believe that this is a rare and pivotal point in the history of our, of our lives personally, of our families, of our communities, of our society, uh, and of nations. And it's hard to see that sometimes when you're really close to it. And we're not being given that context in, in the mainstream. So, so our time of change is not being given a name. So, and here's why this is important. So that we can mourn the passing of a way of life and a way of living that we've all grown accustomed to that no longer is serving us. And it doesn't have to be a big outward ceremony. It simply is mourning the passing uh, of acknowledging that things that we've known in the past no longer fit. And when we begin doing that, that is the first step to making room for the new things that are available and that can serve us in, in healthy ways uh, to embrace the change. And that's what allows us to thrive. So, again, long answer to short question, but uh, that's a big question about why, why I'm optimistic in, in the face of what so many people see as uh, a really frightening, very dangerous world. Wow. I'm just soaking it all in. That was a very good answer. I mean, I, was, I had my eyes closed during that whole uh, answer that you gave because I was visualizing you know, some of the examples that you mentioned, and I agree with you. Um, being optimistic is, in my opinion at least, uh, the way to go. And, um, 
you know, I, I think of that old uh, Steve Jobs uh, Apple commercial, you know, here's to the crazy ones, here's to the, the mystics, you know, the Einsteins and the, the eccentrics. You know, at times the eccentrics could be laughed at, scoffed at and not understood, but they actually are the most optimistic people and they just want to make the world be better in many, many, many times at least. And um, I'm kind of... Yeah, I'm sorry. They, they do, Ash, and and, um, and I know we've got a lot we want to cover, and I'm realizing we've just covered a lot of ground here. <laughs> and sometimes a story is the best way to illustrate uh, a concept. Do we have time? Can I share a brief? We story have as much time as you'd like. Please share. Anchor this. I don't mean to interrupt. I just I, I want us to to be able to to, to have uh, for the whole program today to make sense. And you know, people uh, if they're not aware of some of the things we're talking about. Um, I, I do. I think the story is a good way to go. My my wife and I uh, live in a very rural community in northern New Mexico. It's, it's one of the least sparsely popular, most sparsely popular, least inhabited states in uh, in the United States today. And about a year ago, last fall, uh, it was a beautiful autumn day. We took a drive through the mining communities up in northern New Mexico, uh, in the mountains, and up into southern Colorado. It was just Blue skies, the aspens were turning yellow, you know, snow capped on the peaks. It was just, just a beautiful day. And we stopped at a convenience store in, um, in a little community in southern Colorado for gas. And I went in and talked to the cashier when I, I paid her for the gas. And I said, how are things in your community? And she said, when the mines are open, they, they, they mine a, a very specific mineral used to harden steel called molybdenum, molly is, is what it's called for short. She said, when the molly mines are open, she said, life is good. People make good money. They feel secure. Uh, they are willing to take risks. They'll try new jobs. They'll send their kids to school and take out the loans to send their kids to school. They'll have more babies, bigger families. She said, but when the mines close, it's hell. It's hell in our community. She said, everything stops. She said, people will just scrape and do whatever they can do to get by, to, to bide their time until those mines open again. She said everything comes to close. People want to send their kids to school. They stop having babies. They stop repairing their, their homes. And the community looked like it. it was a very tired community because uh, economically it was very depressed. And I said, well, how do you know the mines are going to open? And she said, they always do. They close and then they reopen again. And I said, well, how long has it been that the mines have been closed this time around? And she thought about it for a minute, and she said, this time they've been closed for nine years. Nine years. This community essentially put their lives on hold, waiting for things to get back to normal. This is the key. Waiting for things to return to what was familiar to them, to what they've always known. Rather than embracing the new opportunities that could help this community and individuals thrive, they, in, in their fear of what that knew is all about. They were clinging to an idea of what they had known in the past for the past 50 or 60 years. The problem is that the price of this ore uh, is now so low because China is producing the ore cheaper and in greater volumes than they can do here in the States. So the mines aren't coming back. And I, I got back into the truck and I said to my wife, I said, I think I just witnessed in this little community a microcosm of what so many people in the world, and even our friends and family, 
are experiencing. They're waiting for things to get back to normal. And in that waiting, in their minds, in their hearts, they're clinging to this idea of what normal is, what should be happening, rather than being open to embracing all of the new opportunities that could allow them to thrive in the new world that's at their doorstep. And I, I said, I, I think we're seeing this in, in many places. We're just so close to it. Uh, it's hard to discern, and, and the reason is it goes back to the bigger picture. We have never been given the opportunity or the reason to mourn the passing of a way of life and a way of living that we've all known in the past that no longer exists. And as we do that, as we embrace this new new uh, that is, is now at our doorstep, we do have the opportunity to thrive in and I'd like to do one more quick story to give a perfect example of that. Here in northern New Mexico, uh, the economy has been hit doubly hard by climate change and, and just by a, a weak economy in general. Uh, and there's a friend of mine, a uh, dear friend who's been a builder for a green, beautiful green, sustainable homes in the desert southwest for, for many years, over 30 years. Uh, and he had a crew uh, of 35, 40 people he was responsible for. He had just taken on the largest project that he ever had been uh, challenged to take on an entire community of these homes. And everything looked great. The deck was stacked in his favor, except it was the year 2008. 2008, the economic collapse and the housing collapse. He lost everything. He couldn't take care of his family. He couldn't sustain his business. He lost his crew. He felt bad about that. And his name is Ken, and when Ken tells a story, he does it much better than I do. He, he tells about waking up, bolting up in bed from a, a deep sleep and, and muttering the words that changed his life. Now, historically, when the world changes, what we try to do is to recreate what's familiar to us in the world somewhere else in another way. We lose a job, we say, where can I go and do the same job again? Ken did something similar and it didn't work for him. He said, nobody wants houses. So he woke up from this very sound sleep, and he was saying the words, and this is, this is pivotal. He wasn't saying, where can I recreate what I've always known? He said, what do people need? And that's the key. He said, what do people need today? What do my friends, what do my family, what does my community need? And, and how do I fit into that? So he got up the next morning after having this profound question come to him, and he began to design, prototype, and build uh, a, an innovative system of raised bed, self-heating, self-watering, covered greenhouses that are modular. They can be as small as 12 inches by 12 inches on a patio in a high-rise in New York where people have no land, New York City or they are as large as four feet by eight feet, and they're strung together in a series in New Mexico where we have a lot of land, com comparatively. The thing is, people need, and this is the answer to his question, they need to be able to take care of themselves. They need to be able to grow their own food. So Ken now is thriving in the worst economic downturn in 70 years in our country, and especially in, in one of the least populated states here in New Mexico, he is thriving in a new business. He gets up in the morning. He's excited to go out and meet people. His health is better. His stress levels are down. He's hired more people than he ever had building homes. I don't think he'll build homes again. He's now shipping the kits 
to build these outside of the country, in Canada, in Europe. And all he did was change the question. The old question in the old world where we believe that we are separate from one another and nature is based in competition and conflict. That's the, the belief that most of us have been steeped in. Is that It's a Darwinian belief that nature is based in this competition and conflict. The old belief, when we go to solve a problem or ask a question, is this the right job? Is this the right relationship? Is this the right partner? Is this the right friendship? Is this the right healthcare decision? The old question in the world, if it were based in competition, would be what can I get from the world that exists? But we don't live in that world. The best science of our time tells us now that we live in a world based in cooperation and mutual aid, nature literally. Peer-reviewed science is telling us nature is based in cooperation and mutual aid. So that makes sense that the question would change from what can I get to what can I give or what can I contribute or what can I share or what can I offer. All did, Ken did was he, he changed that question. And he is thriving in the new world in a way that he, even more than he was in the past. And and the reason I'm sharing that story, it's a beautiful example, of, I think, of something every one of us can do in our lives, uh, even if we're not faced with uh, the loss of a job, or, or some people are. Every morning when we wake up, ask ourselves, what can I contribute to the world today? What can I give? What can I share? What do I have to offer? And it's not based on what your degree is in or your experience or a certificate. Ken had never done this before. It's based on where our passion is and the gifts that we bring to this world. And I, I think those two ideas together, Ash, the idea uh, that we're, we're, we're mourning a past and learning to embrace a, a new normal and to thrive in that new normal, we come into harmony with the laws of, of nature that are based in cooperation rather than competition. Where do we fit? What can we give? What can we share? What can we offer? What can we contribute? So I think it was important to put those two stories together to kind of tie all this together before we go any further with uh, what, what we're doing here. Well, one of the things that, um, thank you for sharing that, one of the things that I, I really heard and resonated with myself is um, you talk about the laws of nature and you talk about, you know, how people are having the ability to change you know, their outcome and they are a wielder of whatever they truly want to manifest. You know, you talked about the laws of nature. What role then does the law of attraction play or is that another way of explaining the law of nature? Well, what we call the law of attraction, I know it means different things to different people. In nature, there is no law of attraction, truly. What there is, the quantum science is telling us that we live in what's called a reflected universe. And I think this is where the principles of many of, uh, that are called the law of attraction, where this comes from. We are surrounded by quantum stuff. If you, if you think of the space in between us and whatever is closest to us, it looks like empty space, it's not. It's full of, of quantum stuff. And if we can think of that literally as, as a screen, uh, like a projection screen, then this quantum stuff responds to what we claim to be true in our hearts and in our minds. And this is where 
the psychology really, uh, really becomes so critical because so many of us feel uh, and fear the things that we don't have. And the question, where were we taught to, to fear the things we don't have rather than to claim the things that we would like to experience in our lives? Uh, I'm going to share another story, <laughs> a quick one. It's a beautiful example of this. Here in the desert southwest, as I mentioned, is where my wife and I live. In the mid-1990s, one of the worst droughts in recorded history, and a native friend of mine called and asked if I would like to join him in a prayer to bring rain to his community. And he, he didn't have to ask twice. I said, absolutely. And I met him at a, a predetermined location. We, we went to an ancient medicine wheel that was so old in, in the high desert. He didn't even know who, who created it. He said the hands of his ancestors placed every stone. And the job of each generation is to maintain the position of those stones. And I had an expectation as an Anglo of what I thought I was going to see. I thought I was going to see some chanting and some dancing, you know. I didn't see any of that. I wasn't prepared for what I saw. He, he, my friend's name is David. He took off his old work boots. He stepped with his naked feet into this stone circle. He closed his eyes. He held his hands in a prayer mudra for just a few seconds. And then he turned around and he looked at me and he looked at his watch. He said, I'm hungry. You want to go get a bite to eat? <laughs> I, said, I said, sure. I said, but I thought you were going to pray for rain. And this is why I'm sharing this, Ash. This is the key. He looked at me and he said, no. He said, if I prayed for rain, rain could never happen. Because the moment we ask for something to come into our lives, we're actually empowering the fact that it does not exist in this moment. Now, that's, that is big. That's powerful. When we ask for something, we're acknowledging that it's not here now. We're actually empowering its not being. And I said, okay, what did you just do when you closed your eyes? He said, ah, when I closed my eyes, I felt the feeling of what it feels like. When I stand with my naked feet in the mud of my Pueblo village, and that mud is there because there's been so much rain, he said, I smell the smells of what it smells like when the rain rolls off the earthen walls of our Pueblo village. And I felt what it feels like to walk with my naked chest through the high fields of corn. And that corn is there because we've had so much rain. And then I gave thanks for the rain that has already happened. And that is a, a, a perfect indigenous perspective of the quantum principle inviting us to feel the feelings. He incorporated all of his senses. It wasn't just a mental thing. He incorporated all of his senses to experience what he was hoping, choosing to bring into his, his world, and then he gave thanks for what already exists. He said, it's already here. I'm just bringing it into the physical. It already exists, he says. I'm just bringing it here. And this is so powerful because so many spiritual and religious traditions. I'm going to say, I'm going to back up. The spiritual traditions existed first, and they tell us about our relationship to the world and ourselves, one another, and nature. The religions came later and wrapped the rules and the dogma around those pre-existing conditions. So it's the religion that has invited us to feel separate from our world. And in our prayers, 
It's the religion that has invited us to ask for the things to come into our lives that don't exist. And even when we're well-intentioned, we may actually be empowering the very thing that we're hoping to change. So the key here is when we, we want abundance in our lives, we want that perfect relationship, we want the health for ourselves or our loved ones, rather than asking for it to be present, the key here to follow this principle is to give thanks for that health, give thanks for that relationship, for the abundance as if it already exists, and to experience it on as many different levels, to, to feel the feeling, to smell the smells, uh, to, to have the, the visualizations, uh, to hear the sounds, as if those things are already present, and that is how we bring it from the quantum world, where it already exists, into this physical world. So uh, I think that is a, is a kind of wraps a couple of these concepts together, and I hope it helps to share my perspective, what I found to be true from working with the indigenous people. No, it definitely does, and um, you know it's amazing because in that one answer alone, um, you mentioned your interpretation of law of attraction. You talked about you know the connection between the, the divine and science, and you know one of the things I liked about what you said too is you were starting to talk about you know the key to the best relationships, and that's actually the next question I'd like to ask you. Um, within your life and other guides that you've worked with or people that inspire you. Um, since you are an optimistic, right? Um, what are the key, what, what's the key? I feel to the best relationships, both from a platonic level and romantically. Like, what are some of the keys? Because I know many of our viewers are looking to have the best relationships, whether it's through friends, family, or of course, love. I, I, I can sure. I'll give you the short answer. Yeah. And I, I think it's it's an answer that um, uh, most of us probably already know. In my experience, the key. Before we can have the kind of relationships you're talking about with other people, we have to have it with ourselves. And that's, that is, I think, the hardest thing for many people. Uh, it's about honesty. It's about trust. It's about being present. Uh, and it's about truth. And before we can ever expect, realistically expect to have that and share that with another person, we've got to be able to have that with ourselves. If we cannot be honest with ourselves we cannot be truthful with ourselves, if we cannot be present with ourselves and, uh, and uh, um, factual about what's happening to us in our lives, if we're in denial on any of those levels, my experience has been, whether it's in the corporate boardroom, whether it's a friendship, whether it's with siblings, uh, romance, or deep intimate relationships, it's almost uh, impossible to have those things in someone else until we can find them in ourselves. And uh, I think that's why the, the self-help, uh, there's so many, everyone learns differently. And so there's so many different ways of going about exploring these. But ultimately, this is, this is what we're trying to do, is, is to find these things within ourselves. Now, the science uh, supports all of the reasons that I've just shared with the science, I mentioned earlier, I am a scientist, so and I'm a realist, and I think it's important to ground any approach that we have to life, whether it's to a healthcare crisis that we or our loved ones may be experiencing, a financial crisis, uh, a job and career crisis, a self-esteem crisis, you know, the loss of marriage, loss of uh, loved one, whatever it is, to ground that in fact and in, in something that we know that works, because there are so many 
self-help modalities out there, Ash, and, and very honestly, you know, as, as an author, I've, I've done this now 30 years, I've been an author, and I've seen, I haven't seen it all, I've seen enough to tell me some of it is really pretty flaky, and some of it is uh, rock solid right on. And we have to be careful, especially when it comes to healthcare decisions. If, if we're challenged with a personal health crisis or, or someone in our family is the last thing you want to do is to, to look for an alternative method that's not based in, in anything that's real and, and, uh, and possibly endanger your life or the life of your loved ones, you're going to look for those alternatives grounded in science. So the reason I'm saying that, when it comes back to the relationships, a new discovery in 1991, uh, I talk about this in, in the new books and uh, certainly in, in my live programs, so I talk about this a lot, uh, is that within the human heart, uh, a discovery was made of about 40,000 cells that are called sensory neurites. And that's a very technical term. Essentially, they're neurons like we have in our brain, except they're in the heart. Uh, they're not shaped like a brain. I'm not saying that we have something that looks like a brain in our head, in our heart, but we have a neural network that functions in our heart in a very similar way to, to the way the neural network in our brain functions. And these two neural networks, they're two separate organs, but the networks work together as a single system. So this this neural network in our heart and our brain, they work together and, and they empower us in ways that we're only beginning to understand. Uh, and when we find the ways to marry these networks together, that is where we create the safety within ourselves to be honest, to be truthful, to be factual. If we're purely in our head, uh, it's, ego is so dominant. If we're purely in our hearts, it often doesn't feel safe to, to be present with ourselves. And you see this with a lot of young people. They cannot be by themselves without some diversion, some distraction uh, around them, whether it's uh, you know, a cell phone or an iPod or it's music or you know, something. It's very difficult for them just to be with themselves. It doesn't feel safe. So this is, again, our indigenous ancestors gave us the keys, and science now is bearing out the facts when we marry these two neural networks, the heart and the brain together, that is when we empower this entire system. Uh, and it's got all kinds of benefits. 1,300 biochemical reactions are triggered in our bodies when we do that. Anti-aging hormones kick up. Strong immune system uh, is, is really enhanced. And the way we go about doing this, uh, I mean, there's so much science behind it and so many techniques well, I'll say the bottom line is this. We can move our awareness into our hearts from our mind. And once we're there, when we can experience in our hearts genuine states of gratitude, positive emotions, gratitude, uh, compassion, care, uh, appreciation, those are the kinds of experiences in our hearts that set up the communication between the heart and the brain uh, that trigger all of these positive benefits in our lives. And among those, I, I shared some of the physical benefits, now some of the, the emotional benefits, is when we are able to establish this relationship, that is where we're, we begin to heal the hurt of life and the loss from the past. And it's also where we begin to feel safe enough to trust and be honest with ourselves. 
And in, in the presence of that experience, to the degree we can have it within ourselves, then we can expect to find that in our relationship with other people. So, again, long answer to a short question, but I, I wanted to I wanted to anchor it in something that's real than just saying, um, you know, a lot of words that, that people have heard before. The science actually is confirming the power of, of very specific uh, emotions. And, and I just named... Uh, some of the key ones, appreciation, gratitude, care, compassion. Those in the laboratory are the kinds of heartfelt emotions. If we can experience those to the best of our ability, genuine states, sincere states of compassion, gratitude, care, um, uh, appreciation, that's when we optimize this connection and empower ourselves personally as, as well as in our relationships with other people in a really healthy way. So does that make sense if I say it that way? No, that made total sense. And um, so many things come to my mind when I heard this. Um, one of the things that I'm curious about, just because you talked a lot about depthness and the deep truth and, you know, what it takes to truly be present and to truly be the most, I call it the most inspiring individual you can be for others in relationships. And for me, at least, I feel that to be truly grounded, you need to have your own unique rituals, habits, you know, for some it's meditation every day, for some it's visualization. For me, it's, you know, looking at my dream board every day, working out every morning to get the endorphins up, um, doing deep spiritual reading. Right now I am on a uh, very big uh, deep spiritual reading uh, kind of mode where every morning I read the uh, Bhagavad Gita in the morning and then in the evening. So that's just as an example. I'm curious for you, what are your daily habits, rituals, habits that you, that you do to stay true, to continue this life that you are leading and inspiring others like myself and others? Uh, well, it's a big question. <laughs> Much of my life is on the road. Uh, I'm traveling tremendously. And for me, uh, one of the greatest honors for me is to be on the stage in the presence of an audience. Uh, there's an agreement that happens when a performer or a musician, I am a musician as well, uh, or an author, is on the stage. And the agreement is that the audience shows up uh, to be an audience and that the, the talent, uh, the performer, uh, the author, the speaker, whoever it is, shows up at their very, very best. At their very best. And that they are fully present, that they don't have a million things on their mind and you know, thinking about where they're going to go next and all that, fully, absolutely present with that audience in the moment. And that, that is a, about a promise. So my promise to myself when I travel is to be the best person I can be for myself and uh, for the people that trust me uh, to meet me in a room or an auditorium or a stadium somewhere. Uh, and that covers a lot of ground for me. Of course, there is uh, travel involves diet, um, uh, movement, uh, uh, sleep, uh, spiritual practices, all those things. And because I'm traveling, uh, I'm not always in the optimum place to do what I would do for my home ritual. So my promise to myself is that I will give myself the best that is available in that place in that moment in time. I'll give myself the best that is available. Uh, now, at home, I eat mostly, uh, mostly vegan. I've been a vegetarian all my life. Uh, and I'm not saying that someone needs to be. For me, 
Uh, I was born and raised in the Midwest. That's beef and cattle country, and I simply could never eat it. When I was uh, uh, before I could even speak, uh, they were trying to feed me food that my body simply would not tolerate, and I would uh, I it wouldn't stay in my body. I, on the radio, that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> this way, my body would not tolerate those things. So I have been on a plant-based diet since um, before I could even speak. And okay. For me, it works. I'm sorry, what were you going to say? No, I said okay, though. That's amazing. I was just about to say um, that I've been hearing more and more about plant-based diets, and um, it sounds like, well, you know. Well, it, it, yeah, it worked for me. Now, I also know uh, I have a lot of friends that, that aren't, and there's no judgment with me uh, around that. If you, if someone was born and raised uh, on uh, on meat, on red meat, and their bodies are accustomed to getting the protein from that very accessible source of meat, uh, it is more difficult to wean from that. It's possible. You have to do it gradually over time. You can't just stop one day. I've seen people try to do that. They stop, they feel great for about two weeks, and then they hit what's called the wall, and they become very lethargic. They don't know what's wrong. They think, you know, they're sick, and, and, and they're not. Their body just doesn't hasn't learned to get the protein from the other sources. So, so I'm just saying that for me, uh, I can't always eat raw uh, or vegan when I'm traveling. You wouldn't want to. You know, some places the food's not washed well, it's not cooked well, uh, or prepared well. So, so when I travel, uh, I'm perfectly fine eating cooked vegetables. Um, I eat as clean as I possibly can. Uh, I don't. I still don't eat meat, but I will eat fish on the road, and I have an agreement uh, with my body. And with the fish, I'll eat salmon, uh, which is the native native uh, traditions call a wisdom fish. Uh, I have an agreement to do a physical routine at some point before the end of my day, and it's a routine that I've created from the monks and the nuns I learned in Tibet, from the native people through the southwest, from the shaman in the Andes of Peru and Bolivia. It's not one specific tradition. It doesn't follow one specific practice, but it is a series of, of movements and breath, uh, and what you would probably call a, a cross between a prayer and a meditation. And my agreement is I'll, I will do that sometime before the end of the day. Now, I, I'm, it, it's not about, I don't make it into a religion where if something happens and I cannot do that, I feel guilty and I beat myself up. That that's defeats the purpose of the practice. But it may be it may be ten minutes before the end of the day. It might be at eleven fifty at night. I start my practice, and it will get done at some point uh, every single day. It might be a yoga mat in a workout room. It might be a bath towel on the carpet or the tile of my hotel floor. Uh, but it will it will get done. So I think it's important to say this that when we when we embark upon these routines that we not make a religion out of them and beat ourselves up and criticize ourselves uh, if, for whatever reason, they don't get done. But the flip side of that is when we make that promise, we have to have the discipline to do them when, when we possibly can. So if I'm on an airplane and I'm on a 14-hour flight and the only food that's there happens to be something I don't typically eat, you know, I'm not going to feel bad for what I eat on the plane. When I get to the end of my 14-hour flight, I'm going to find the best place with the highest quality of food. The, the closer to nature, the less cooked, the more alive that food is, the, the better it is for me. Um, and and I, I think that for me, that's what I, I found that, that works. 
uh, and, and I do my best to honor that. But here's the thing. If you sit down at a beautiful restaurant and you have really clean, living food available and you choose something else, you can do that, but you haven't kept your promise to yourself. And, and that's the key. It's, it's about honoring the promise to the best of our ability. So diet, exercise, um, uh, you know, a, a spiritual, heart-brain, meditative, prayer-based technique. Uh, I think those are important. I found them to be important in my life. That's amazing. And uh, I, why I say that's amazing is because, um, I mean, I meet a lot of people who talk about eating plant-based food or they're doing vegans from a solely health perspective, but you truly have shown that it's beyond clean eating and eating plant-based foods most of the time is also good for the soul and uh, even the process of eating certain foods and how it affects your heart and your mind. Um, I've never heard an explanation like that. I mean, seriously, I don't I don't know if you've ever written a book on uh, nutrition, but uh, you have a calling there, my friend. <laughs> let, me, let, let me just share something. Yeah. In my early days of exploring some of our most ancient and cherished spiritual traditions, what I found is that some of the key texts have been removed from the mainstream. Some of them have been hidden for a very long time. Uh, and the, the biblical texts uh, are among the, the places where that has happened. And, and I just want to preface, it's not about religion, but there is a lot of wisdom from the initiates in those ancient spiritual texts. So in the 4th century, there were 43 books that were removed from what became the modern Christian Bible, and, and the books that remained were rearranged, and the, and the language was changed. So for me, it's about going back. My sense is the closer we can get to the original wisdom, the more intact that wisdom is. One of the places where I found this was in a, uh, uh, a text that was written by the ancient Essenes, E-S-S-E-N-E-S, -S -E -E for our, our listeners who may not be familiar, uh, and they are a mystical sect appeared 500, time, 500 years before the time of Jesus. Um, Jesus was born into the tradition of the Essenes, and after the crucifixion, they were persecuted, and they disbanded, and they fled, uh, and they were scattered uh, throughout the earth and, and became across the earth, and they became other mystical sects. They changed their, their names. So one of the, the passages in one of the original Essene texts is one that has stayed with me uh, for most of my adult life, and it's so brief, it's so pure, and it's so right on. You can't mistake what's being said here. And it's when the Master was answering a question to his disciples. The disciples said, what is it that we should be eating? And he essentially said, I'll paraphrase, he said, you can eat whatever you want to eat. However, that which kills your food kills your body as well, and that which gives life to your food will give life to your body as well. And when you think about that, and if that becomes a guiding principle for everything that we put into our bodies, all of a sudden when you open up a processed, packaged, high-fructose corn syrup uh, nugget of something that came, you know, shrink-wrapped from a machine, and you realize that there really is nothing living in that food, it's not going to, to bring any life to your body, then, uh, then it all boils down to that promise that you made to yourself. If you make a, a promise and, and you say, I will give myself the best that is possible in, in this moment, and you have a choice between that nugget and something uh, fresh and living and, uh, that comes from the earth, then you know what your choice is. So um, that is something that 
it just really resonated with me. And I said, you know, if I'm going to travel this earth across time zones and continents, and I'm going to live a long, healthy life and be the best man and the best person I can be and be present, alive, uh, and at my very best for my audiences all over the world, um, this is the principle that I'm going to choose to honor. And I've, I've done my very best. I continue to do my best every day to do that. Well, Greg, I know we're nearing the end of this interview, and um, I think that last answer that you just gave about honoring yourself and honoring the world is probably the best way to conclude this. Um, I just wanted to say personally from the bottom of my heart and uh, from all the members of DreamYourLife.com and the many other people around the world that will be hearing this interview, um, thank you for doing what you're doing, and you are truly a warrior on a path to heal the world. And when I mean warrior, I'm talking about the courageous side that you have, the resourcefulness that you have, and of course the drive that you have to have us all lead, be our own kings, be our own queens, be in control of our lives. And so I honor you for that and uh, thank you again. And I'm looking forward to having more collaborations, conversations, and um, other initiatives to uh, share the great things that you're doing. Wow, Ash. Well, thank you. Thank you for those kind words. As uh, as I expected, our time together has gone by very quickly. Did it seem to you like it passed pretty quickly? Uh, yeah, I felt like we just talked to you 10 minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I want to thank you for your uh, for your vision, uh, for creating this kind of program and your, your dedication, your perseverance for, for pulling it together. Uh, this is a conversation I rarely have with other people, and it's not that I'm reluctant to have it, it's people simply don't ask. And, um, you know, they, we talk a lot about the books, but not so much about personal practices. So I, I just want to emphasize everyone learns differently, and every body functions, every physical body functions differently. And I think maybe one of our greatest challenges is to find out what's true for us and what's right uh, you know, for us as individuals, rather than following something that someone else has told us we need to do or we should be doing or is right for us, uh, you know, broad general categories we can do that. But when it comes down to specifics, we've got to figure out what works for our own bodies, and, and that's a very personal journey for everyone. And, and I think if we can do without judgment of right, wrong, good, or bad, it just is. You know, this is what works. Um, that is where the healing really begins. And I think the, the greater we can embrace those truths within ourselves, I think the more empowered we are to be at our best when it comes to our relationships with other people and with our dreams, the things that we choose to bring into our lives, the healthier uh, we can embrace that change, the, the healthier we are to, to embrace the possibility of what those dreams really mean in our lives. And, and uh, that is where the journey begins. So I look forward to the next time, my friend. Thank you so very much. And to all of our listeners, thank you for all that you're doing to be the best that you can be and create the best world possible. Uh, we need you and love you and appreciate you tremendously. Take good care.